This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast, episode 403, Funding Big Science, from ALMA to LIGO to TMT. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of the universe today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Awesome. Uh, super excited about the gravitational waves announcement. We, of course, uh, predicted this years ago in Astronomy <laughs> Cast. But, but it's nice to see uh, modern science catching up with, uh, with the stuff that we've explained for our, for our listeners uh, over the last couple of years. But, but, you know, it still wasn't a Six Sigma detection. They have spent billions, well, at least many, many millions. And, and they have like one low signal. To There'll noise. be more. <laughs> There'll be more. There, Don't there's worry. no way to predict that. That's the thing. But I anyways, just predicted I'm it. Being, I'm being a curmudgeon. You I admit are being to a this. curmudgeon. Yeah. So today's episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Casper Mattresses. And I know we've mentioned Casper a few times in the past. They are kind of an amazing new mattress company where uh, instead of going to a showroom, they ship you the mattress through the mail in this crazy box. It's all just sort of like really squished in and then you open it up and the thing kind of expands and it's this great sort of hybrid foam mattress. It's got this latex foam and then also this memory foam. The two work together as this mattress. Now I own, the story is like, they sent Pamela and myself uh, sample mattresses. I had to have mine sent to the States at the time. So I put my girlfriend, now wife, um, in, in the States. And I really love the mattress, but we had to leave it there when my wife moved to Canada. So I bought a second one for, uh, for our bed. Uh, so I got my own, with my own dime. Uh, and then I got another one, uh, for the spare bedroom because we needed another mattress in there. So I now have had three Casper mattresses uh, that I slept on and they're great. I really like them and I definitely stand behind uh, behind these mattresses. So the cool thing about buying Casper mattresses, it's completely risk-free. They offer free delivery and return within a 100-day period. So that'll give you the time to find out if you like the mattress or not. And I think you like it. Uh, so it's just the right sink, just the right bounce. Uh, you know, you're really going to like it. Free risk, uh, free trial, return policy. The mattresses are made in America, which, uh, you know, is, is great, so you know they're not coming from, from overseas. Uh, and the prices are really reasonable. So 500 for a twin-size mattress, 950 for a king-size mattress, and you'll find that's the same price or much cheaper than some of the mattresses you might find in the store. So to get a deal on your Casper mattress, all you have to do is go to casper.com slash astro and use the promo code astro, and they'll knock $50 off the price of your mattress. Now, terms and conditions apply. And you can get them in Canada as well, not just the States. So once again, go to casper.com slash astro and use the promo code astro to get $50 off of your mattress purchase. All right. Thanks, Casper. This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Eighth Light, Inc. Eighth Light is an agile software development company. 
they craft beautiful applications that are durable and reliable. Eighth Light provides disciplined software leadership on demand and shares its expertise to make your project better. For more information, visit them online at www.8thlight.com. Just remember, that's www.thedigit8thlight.com. Drop them a note. Eighth Light. Software is their craft. Astronomy Cast is proudly sponsored by CleanCoders.com. Training videos with personality for software professionals. Big science takes big money, and observatories make some of the biggest science there is. So how do projects like this get conceived and funded, and where does the money come from? We've been doing this show long enough, and you've been involved in this long enough, and you've actually gone through whole cycles. You've been involved in helping pick uh, big concepts, helping suggest missions. So uh, this is really exciting. You've, you've been a, you know, <laughs> you've been a part of this whole cycle, which is great. Yeah. Um, so I'm starting to feel old. <laughs> like, like one of the elder states people of this whole uh, situation. It's weird. Um, so let's, let's go back. So let's talk about like a big mission, like, like the 30 meter telescope, which is one of the ones or the, absurdly overwhelmingly large observatory <laughs> you know uh in the end here's this great big telescope perched atop a, a volcanic hawaiian island how did it get from concept through funding to to an actual construction well well so the the tmt uh is actually currently canceled but its yeah. budget is sitting there right well, let's imagine, you know, instead it's on the Canary Island, whatever, right? <laughs> a big telescope perched atop a, a Hawaiian volcanic island. So so I think the, the key thing is just you brought up, this is a long process. And our funding for these massive facilities comes from two different places. It comes from the National Science Foundation and it comes from NASA here in the United States. And globally, we're looking at beyond the United States, the funding comes from government agencies and from universities and other nations. Yeah, we have the National Research Council here in Canada. And, and so when we're looking to build these giant facilities like the Canada-France-Hawaii Telescope, which is oddly located in Arizona, um, in the, in these cases, you're looking to build uh, – actually, no, I'm sorry. I lied. That one is located in Hawaii. It's mm -hmm. Wynn, which is in uh, in Arizona. When you're Hawaii, though, at, is, is, our, is our next province. Right. So so you have the, the Kenna Hawaii France Telescope in Hawaii. You have Wynn, which is, uh, I believe, Wyoming, Yale, something that begins with an I, National uh, Optical Astronomy Observatory. These are consortium telescopes. And as we build bigger and bigger and bigger facilities, uh, they stop being four-letter acronyms and they become groups of 30, 40, 50 different institutions and nations, each adding in their own chunk to the pie. But, I mean, th that's two different creatures, right? There's the one of just having like a single country like, you know, the United States – Choosing a telescope, funding it, and getting it built, and then consortium is like a whole other level of complexity. You just, you just, you know, added orders of magnitude to the complexity. Can we go back and just figure out how the <laughs> how the, the single country version of this gets done? Well, the single country one is getting more and more rare. So 
in either case, the the starting point is um, you have a national vision for where science is going. And you start with that vision. Here in the United States, we call it the decadal survey. More and more nations are starting to come up with their own version of the decadal survey. And these are where you get key players in the scientific field of your respective nation and make them write reports and white papers and more reports and more white papers until you end up with a massive document that details what they see as the most important science questions to be answered in the next 10 years and detail what are the spacecraft, what are the ground-based facilities that are needed to answer those questions. And you were actually involved in yeah. the decadal survey. So how did that happen? Like, did you get the call? Did, did, <laughs> That's did, actually how it happened. Right? So, so someone so, called you and said, Pamela, we need your help. Pretty much. At, at the highest levels, the National Research Council or National Academies of Science uh, in the United States will enjoin panels. And they start at the highest levels. And these are the key players who then are like, OK, so we need um, no one person is an expert in everything. And we admit to that most of the time. And, and so that top panel will be like, and we need to enjoin people to discuss star formation, people to discuss gravitational lensing, people to discuss extragalactic astronomy and star formation. And so you get all of these different panels together. Some of them are discussing ideas like increasing diversity, increasing education. Others are trying to figure out what are the facilities that we need to move forward. And so you end up with this tiered of panels reporting to larger committees, reporting to a core committee at the top that edits together a massive document that then goes to the National Science Foundation and to NASA and is used to set up funding goals. And this is where you start seeing, looking at how the National Science Foundation breaks apart the funding that they get from Congress and says, okay, so now we're going to spend this much on extragalactic, this much on facilities, this much on planetary science. And that breakup reflects what's needed to meet these decadal survey goals. Okay. So, you know, again, you got the call. Uh, you joined the panel. <laughs> you guys make a bunch of, of recommendations. Those recommendations then, they go to to which? To the funding agencies? To the National Science Foundation and such? Is that right? Yep. Yes. Okay. So let's imagine, let's say that, you know, uh, someone says we would like to understand dark matter better. And so someone says we should make the dark matter observatory. Yeah, National that Science actually Foundation. happened. That's okay. pretty much how it occurred. Okay. So, so in this case, dark energy was uh, detailed as one of the most important problems we can try and solve. And so funding was set aside to go for the W-first instrument and for the uh, dark energy explorer, the HET decks on the Hobby Eberly telescope. Uh, and so we have, first of all, a many million dollar instrument being built to go on a nine meter telescope down in Texas, and then an entire spacecraft that is working its way slowly towards construction and launch. Okay, so somebody, a panel, a group at the National Science Foundation 
sets aside we'll this put budget. Put out a call for proposals. Yeah, we'll put out a call for proposals. So, but who has a, approved the budget? Is it the, you know, the executive of the National Science Foundation, or is it the government? Who who decides how much it's, money is going to be spent? It actually, at a certain level, uh, is a mix of Congress and bureaucrats. So, so you have the president's budget. Will say. And we wish to give this much to the NSF and this much to NASA. And there's a certain amount of more detailed goals. For instance, James Webb Space Telescope is a line item request. And with all of these budgets put in, there is large chunks that are set aside, like this amount will go towards facilities. And then it's in the hands of the folks at the National Science Foundation working through a competitive process to try and figure out, so of all of this facilities money that isn't line item allocations, how much of it goes towards keeping things like the Arecibo radio telescope going? How much of it goes towards keeping the VLA going? And there are competitive processes where they say, okay, let's compete to to run these different organizations and hey anyone who has a good idea can compete now you may not necessarily win if you don't have the staffing and the support and the institution to support you but it's a competitive process where they come in and say we can do it for this amount of money we're getting this amount amount of additional funding from our university from our institution from partnerships with other institutions and over time, you'll actually see some facilities' amount of funding change in terms of what's paid for by the National Science Foundation versus what's paid for out of individual university funding. Right. So I can kind of imagine that you know, the decadal survey comes together. The recommendation is to build a dark energy detect some kind of mission. Yeah. So then the National Science Foundation or NASA goes out and says, hey, everybody, you know, give us proposals for a mission that will help understand dark energy better. And then people will come back and say, we could do it for 100 million. We could do it for 500 million. If you gave us 5 billion, we can come up with a really <laughs> cool spacecraft. They right? usually they, do cap it. They cap the Okay. So they say like, but don't spend more than $300 million. Right. Like go crazy, but not that crazy. Exactly. Because we're not going to listen. Okay, great. So then all the proposals come in and they pick one of the proposals and then it's they turn one around. Or more. Yeah. They're one or more proposals and they turn around and say, okay, we like this idea of this $300 million mission start building it or like like give mm -hmm. us another proposal or do they want to turn around and take that idea and farm that out to a bunch of people and say okay we now know what the what that mission is going to be we want these you know all of you 10 people to propose to build this this mission or is the person who's proposed the mission the one who's then going to build it it, it can go both ways or okay. all of the above actually so okay, for instance if you have something that already exists that's been around for a while, they will recompete management of it on a six to 10 year basis, depending on what the facility is. So, the people who are running the very large array today, who are in fact running the National Radio Astronomy Observatory today, those may not be the same people, those may not be the same organizations. So, they will recompete the entire organization on a regular basis. Right. Now, at a lower yeah. level, they will also say, okay, so we really like your idea for this big picture instrument and say NASA is the person funding the, t the 
spacecraft because NASA funds spacecraft. Uh, now we're going to compete out all the instruments on that spacecraft. So they fund one body to be the main cooperative agreement or grant holder, depending on the size of the spacecraft. And now they're going to compete out the instruments. So this can go down to a very fine level of, we like your idea, but, or, hey, it's a small project, go for it, we trust you to do it on your own. It all depends on how much money is involved, how much they're going to micromanage you, and how much they're likely to recompete your idea along the way, potentially even removing you from your own idea. Well, that's it. And that's that's got to be heartbreaking, right? Is that you propose a really clever idea for some cool coronagraph that nobody's thought of. And it's intriguing of an enough of an idea that you really need to put it back out to 10 different people to see who can build you a coronagraph for the amount of money that you can afford. Who has the, you know, the person who comes up with the idea isn't necessarily the team that's best equipped to actually build the final project. So I can imagine that's a little, uh, a little frustrating. So, okay. So we've got the situation. You've, you've we've got the, the, they've gone over proposals. The proposals come back. One of the proposals is chosen for, say, $300 million. How does the funding then flow to the people who are going to build this thing? It's usually through a cooperative agreement process. And it's not going to be $300 million. The entire budget for facilities for the National Science Foundation is like $150 million to fund everything. Well, I was thinking like a new telescope, like the 30-meter telescope, right? That's going to cost big money to build. Right, but they're not going to fund all of it up front. And it's still not going to cost that much money. The a lot of people don't really understand the the full range in in cost for these different uh facilities so we we're used to dealing with numbers like the hubble space telescope 2.5 billion but when we start looking at ground-based facilities our most cutting edge crazy facilities where we had to build the road there things like that we're looking at the atacama um telescope alma the radio array down in south america that is as hard a project as you get um that was 1.4 billion when you look at the large synoptic survey telescope its entire cost for the national science foundation part is 466 million so it's a much less expensive project and that's spread out over a couple of decades where the most expensive year that it has slated they're looking at 100 million and that year it pretty much eats all the facilities budget for everybody by itself right so but the point being that that they are feeding that money in tranches over very long periods of time yes and And this is how we can do these projects right and if you fail to deliver on your milestones somebody else can be selected to take over and finish the project or they just can it there is a history of that happening we were working in texas and by we i mean people much older than me because i was still in college uh there was a large synchrotron cyclotron uh, that was being built under Texas. Uh, the superconducting super collider. Yeah. And um, it, Congress didn't like it. It was going over budget. It was behind schedule. And they didn't like it. 
And so they canceled the project and it probably actually cost them more money to close out the project than it would have for them to let it just keep going. Right. Uh, okay, so now I will uh, permit the more complicated version of this story, which is the international <laughs> collaboration side. So like you just discussed, that's how it works if it's just an American only or just a Canadian, you know, it's only our um, uh, National Research Council. Uh, so what if it's going to be an international collaboration? How does that come together? And how, do the, how does the money flow? So, so there you end up usually working with a central, central organization that gets formed to run the facility. And it may be running through a single uh, university that has to put together all of these partnerships. And that central university is the one that maintains the risk. You put together, in some cases, full international treaties on, and Germany shall provide this much money, and Italy shall provide this much money. And in exchange for providing that much money, they get a certain share of the scientific time on the instruments. So you're looking at a certain number of nights where they get as particular as this institution will get this many dark nights and this many gray nights and this much bright time. And it's very particular so that you know exactly what you're getting for your dollars. And sometimes it's not a specific and we're going to contribute this much money. It's going to be instead and we're going to contribute this instrument. And in that case, the institution that's supplying the instrument is taking on, in some ways, even a greater risk because it could be that that instrument ends up costing them more than they thought. Um so it's a very detailed set of contracts that go into place, and you can end up in real trouble sometimes. The Gemini telescope ran into issues a few years ago where the United Kingdom was like, and we're no longer going to be supporting this. So suddenly you had a national government saying, we're out, no more money for you. And Gemini still had to figure out how to pay its bills. And the U.S. is actually kind of notorious for doing this to international collaborations to build spaceships where we're like, and we're no longer going to be helping you build your spaceship or yeah, we've got a new president all by ourselves. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's yeah. Yeah. This happens. We're mm -hmm. kind of bastards. Oh, um, <laughs> So uh, so I can imagine, right, the complexities of this. Like on the one hand, if you have something really simple, like it's just a telescope and we're all going to collaborate our money, some agency is the lead, right? And then it could be government or it could be a university. It could be a research institution. And then they sign on partners. I guess you do horse trading to say, we need another $30 million. We'll give you one-seventh of our observing time in exchange for your $30 million. You can have – you know, it's like the way I help my children negotiate. You can have every, you know, every second Wednesday, um, uh, you can use the observatory. Or they can say, we need a specific instrument, a very special kind of camera. And you Italians are really, you know, have a lot of experience in making these kinds of cameras. So would you be willing to contribute that special camera to this telescope? And in exchange, you can use the telescope or your institutions can use it on, on these nights, those nights, whatever. So like on the one hand, it really, it allows observatories to be built that just could never be built by any one country, right. any one research institution, whatever. But it generates a level of complexity and uh, international trade law and et cetera. That's just got to be, you know, the bureaucracy's just got to be overwhelming. 
Well, it's the bureaucracy in the grand scheme of things, the the Pacific trade agreements, the, those are much more complicated. The real problem is the the fact that once an instrument's going, once a facility is going, it really is possible for random partner to drop out and to essentially kill the entire project and everyone loses all of their money that has already been spent. And, and so this is where you are, can get a lot of animosity. Right. And these exist, right? There are yeah. half-built instruments out there that the funding just ran out and people pulled out and the thing just never got built. Yeah. And in trying to look at all of this, the scientists are kind of caught in the middle. Because on one hand, we desperately want to see all of our facilities kept in place. But as the horse trading goes on, we end up seeing things like right now, Arecibo is yet again at risk. And it it seems like Congress and NSF and NRAO have been systematically trying to get rid of Arecibo every year or two, as long as I've been an adult. Yeah. It's just one of those facilities they keep trying to kill. And it's the coolest facility. Well, it's it's one of the cool ones, and it's doing solid science. It's just not doing the sexy stuff that completely um, grabs every single headline. It's doing the really necessary stuff, and... But isn't it the observatory that made contact with aliens? Or maybe I'm thinking of a book. Yeah, I think that's kind of a movie. Okay, a movie, yeah. 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 But it is the observatory that keeps imaging asteroids as they come tumbling past and helping us to accurately measure their distances. Being able to accurately measure the distance to an asteroid kind of helps us know if we're going to die or not. And I'm in a favor. I'm in favor of knowing if we're going to die. Right. Uh, so do you think, though, I mean, with a lot of the low hanging fruit has been plucked, the, you know, the easier discoveries, this, you know, we discovered Uranus, we discovered Neptune, we have, you know, we've discovered a bunch of moons of, of, of Saturn, we've been able to see some Kuiper Belt objects, that we're moving into this future where the bigger and bigger science is going to require much bigger, much more expensive instruments, things like the the 30 meter telescope the was it the overwhelmingly large telescope the uh you know the, extraordinarily whatever, large extraordinarily telescope. large yeah. whatever comes after the large hadron collider that 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 these international collaborations of big science are going to be the rule then that's the only way that you're going to be able to keep pushing the boundaries out is with ever more larger observatories i mean you could build an observatory or the 30 meter telescope will kick Hubble's butt when it finally gets built from the ground, right? It'll kick its butt all the way from the ground up into orbit. But the Which thing is has, why we're not replacing Hubble. Right, right, right. Um, Which, but, but, you know, you need these. So do you see this being just the, this is the rule that, that we better buckle down and get better at international uh, science law? And I, I see it as actually a problem. So. Right now, we have this trend where in order to answer the cutting edge, we haven't got a clue kind of problems. We need to build these many, many, many 
billion dollar facilities. And as we build more and more of these built billion dollar facilities, they eat up more and more of the overall facilities maintenance budget. Um, LIGO, which I'm a curmudgeon about, costs $30 million a year to maintain out of a budget that's 100 to 120 million a year from the National Science Foundation. So you're looking at one facility that has been running since the mid 90s and has made a single detection in that entire time that wasn't even a Six Sigma detection. Um, I am a curmudgeon. Totally. I admit to this. Yeah. But it's eating a huge, huge portion of the budget in hopes of making detections that confirm theories. It's not even trying to push our understanding into new directions. It's trying to say, yes, our understanding is correct. Um, as we build more and more of these single-purpose, single-science facilities, we are losing our ability to find out what we don't know, which is a really weird thing to say. But if you think about it, LIGO is my pet peeve because I just I look at its entire budget and I'm like, why didn't we kill this and build Lisa and just have higher quality in orbit? Personal problem. I admit to this. I'm a curmudgeon about LIGO. Get over but it already. We, Come on. No. Work through it. Um, <laughs> so, so you th- so talk to your therapist. So we have Planck and we have WMAP, which have done outstanding things that have changed our understanding of the expansion of the universe. But at the end of the day, these were instruments that were built to study a single thing, the cosmic microwave background. They did have some ancillary science they could do, but it was limited ancillary science. With the Large Hadron Collider, we have something that was designed to look for the Higgs boson. That's where the majority of its budget has ended up going. It is going to potentially do ancillary additional science, looking for additional particles. But we're spending huge proportions of our budget on these facilities that can do a thing. Right. Now, luckily, we do have other things out there, like the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, that has a primary purpose of making sure we don't die by asteroid. But in the process of doing that primary purpose, is going to do probably more uh, discovery of things we don't even know exist than like everything else out there. Yeah, we, we talked to a guest the- on the Weekly Space Hangout that it's going to potentially find thousands of supernovae each pass. Now, we have a problem with this, though. In, in putting such a huge proportion of our budget into these single-purpose instruments, LSST is a survey instrument, um, we don't have any telescopes left to follow up on what they discover. There, there's a few out there, but universities are closing them up in favor of these giant systems. If we don't have those four-meter telescopes out there to follow up on what LSST discovers, how the heck do we turn these discoveries into real understanding? But that sounds like it's a sort of a balancing act that will never be complete, right? That that you'll be like, you'll get ahead on the one place. You'd be like, oh, we've got too many single-purpose instruments that are churning out too much data, and we don't, have, we can't do follow-up observations. So then the next round of funding will encourage a bunch of the more general-purpose instruments. And then you'd be like, yeah, but we've got these specific questions we really need answered, and it'll just go back and forth. See, there's, there's a problem with that logic versus reality. And the problem is reality is we're in a flat budget scenario. If you're in a flat budget scenario, 
every time you build a new instrument, you have to kill an old one. So this means that we don't get to keep the general purpose telescopes that allow us to follow up on what the single purpose ones find if we build the single purpose ones. And as we're building more and more of these hyper expensive facilities, the Almas of the world, these hyper expensive facilities, they wipe out a large number of the small facilities. One of the most terrifying things I saw is all of Kitt Peak National Observatory is currently somewhat in jeopardy. All of it. This is one of the great observatories in North America. And we may have to shut it down because we have too many other things like LSST. Okay, fine. We're trying you're to in charge. Out how to pay for. You, you're <laughs> in charge. I hereby elect you uh, queen of funding. Uh, and you can magically disappear any projects that you don't like. Uh, and every project will come in on budget, on time. <laughs> what would you do? I, I have to admit that I would want things that were highly productive. Um, LSST fits that model of highly productive science. Yeah, don't you so take that away from me. Right. So things that are out there and the data per dollar is high. I am in favor of using that as something of a criteria. And this is what makes me so curmudgeonly about LIGO is you don't have a lot of data per dollar. Um, I think that when it comes to projects that are low data per dollar, we need to spread out that budget so far that no one nation is really suffering under the weight of it. When we look at things like LIGO, those are international collaborations, but that is 30 million a year that we're looking at in the numbers I found. And I admit I didn't reconfirm them on the NSF uh, website because the NSF website left me scratching my head. But the number I was finding was 30 million a year to maintain it. And um, that's, that's huge. That, that could go into so much other science. All right. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Pamela. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Astronomy Cast, a nonprofit resource provided by Astrosphere New Media Association. Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. You can find show notes and transcripts for every episode at astronomycast.com. You can email us at infoastronomycast.com. At Tweet us at astronomycast. Like us on Facebook or circle us on Google+. We record our show live on Google+, every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, or 2000 Greenwich Mean Time. If you missed the live event, you can always catch up over at cosmoquest.org. If you enjoy Astronomy Cast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for U.S. residents. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend us to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Our music is provided by Travis Searle and the show is edited by Preston Gibson. <laughs>